the Irish Times Inside Business Podcast, in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business, a podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Cliff Taylor, standing in today for Kieran Hancock. Today's podcast is all about energy. Later, I will be talking to Kevin O'Donovan of Statcraft, Europe's biggest renewable energy company, about his plans to invest in wind energy off the east coast of Ireland. But first, with energy prices soaring and fears about oil and gas supply, I'm joined to discuss what happens next by Mirren Lynch, energy economist and senior research officer at the ESRI, and Jared Brady, head of national policy and chief economist at IBEC. We're in Lynch. We've seen prices, uh, oil and gas prices, rise to uh, record levels. There's talk of the EU discussing embargoes on Russian oil and gas. We don't know what's going to come of that yet. But clearly, this is a tricky outlook for Ireland as an energy importer. Is there any way to uh, assess how bad this could become for us uh, or what the main risks are now? It's a good question. Uh, we, We don't have good data as we would like, let me put it that way. So what we do know is how much gas we use um, and we do know where it comes from. So we get about a third of our gas from Carob and then the remainder all comes by pipeline from Great Britain. And we also know where Britain gets their gas and primarily from Norway, also a decent chunk of liquefied natural gas comes from the likes of Qatar and also they're getting more and more from North America. Um, and then in terms of oil, um, kind of those kind of supplies for Ireland, um, well, oil supplies in general are a bit more flexible in that you don't necessarily have to pipe everything. Um, oil just goes on barrels, on ships, on trucks, all the rest of it. Um, but just because we're not directly connected to Russia f- with gas pipelines and just because we don't get a huge amount of our oil directly from Russia doesn't mean that we wouldn't be impacted by EU embargoes on Russian energy. And that's because... Russia is a very big supplier to Europe as a whole, particularly Germany and Eastern European countries, as you can imagine. Um, And if there was a European agreement for actual embargoes on Russian energy imports, one would imagine that that would not happen without pretty strong agreements in places to who gets what um, of the non-Russian energy sources available to us. So I don't think there's any version of the world in which Ireland could continue to sit pretty and use all of our gas from Carob and all of our gas from Norway via GB. And we see rolling blackouts in Germany and Poland and, and that kind of thing. That's just not going to happen. So if there are embargoes agreed, it's going to certainly put extreme pressure on energy prices, much more than we've seen, because we're going to be getting more or less the same amount of European energy, but buying it from a much smaller market, essentially. We've just cut ourselves off from a large supplier. Um, now, this is where the data issues really start to bite, because what we don't have is um, super good estimates of elasticities of demand. So what exactly would happen, particularly in the short run, if we were just faced with those super high prices and those actual constraints? Um, and that's where things are a little murkier. But what we certainly would see is much, um, much higher prices in energy, which, of course, would feed into higher prices across the economy. And we're already seeing um, very high costs of living at this stage. So it's certainly not good news. I know it's impossible to say where prices are going to go, but it is fair to say that if there is an embargo, for example, on oil, which seems the more likely, uh, the more likely in the short term that that we could see oil prices go significantly higher, and and perhaps also 
difficulties in accessing some of the products that were particularly reliant on from from Russia. Um, diesel seems to be one that's in the spotlight at the moment with a, some warnings from the main diesel producers that there, there could be shortages and, and talk that stocks of diesel here are low enough. Yeah, so diesel is... Um it, I mean, there's an increasing amount of private transportation served by diesel, but it's also very important on for freight and for trucking and for transportation of goods as opposed to transportation of people. Um, and uh, it's certainly the case that higher prices um, for oil will translate into higher prices at the pump. Um, we have Haulier saying that they're already um, kind of at their limits. There is certainly more that could be done in theory on things like excise duty. And you have to remember as well that as prices go up, so does VAT. So the amount of taxation that's taken on fuels through VAT is going up as prices go up. But uh, there are limits to how much you kind of want to go cutting excise duties for all sorts of reasons, some environmental and then some on the taxation side itself. So uh, it would be... um, would we get to the point where we see actual shortages of various goods? Potentially, but it's certainly on the price side that we would be seeing these impacts for sure. Chair Brady of IBEC, Merlin's colleagues in the ESRI uh, had their quarterly commentary out today talking about inflation possibly spiking as high as 8.5%, averaging near 7% for the year. That's bound to have a big impact on, on growth and, and businesses yeah, we're seeing it uh, probably two sides, Cliff, in, in membership where uh, the first impact is uh, businesses use about three billion of gas and electricity every year and another billion and a half of other fuels, um, mostly road transport. Uh, so so hauliers, as, as Mern mentioned, uh, talking to members in, in the last couple of weeks, people who are re-signing contracts that, that were 12 months or 24 months and ran out. In recent months, um, they're seeing increases in gas prices that are three or four times what they had on the previous contract. So, so I've talked to companies who have tens and hundreds of million increases in in their energy bills, which is obviously a challenge, particularly in high energy and, and low margin high energy sectors. Um, we've seen reactions to that across Europe already, where, where the French government have said, if you're a high energy user and you're and you're loss making, they're going to subsidise half of your of your excess energy bills relative to last year. Um, and we sent a letter to the Taoiseach uh, Friday week um, saying something similar needs to be brought in here. Uh, on the other side, um, on, on the consumer side, obviously, there's there's a big worry there for a couple of reasons. One is as inflation starts to go up and the SRI are saying it, it might peak at eight and a half, nine percent. And indeed, it could go higher if we see embargoes on, on Russian energy um, in the coming weeks, um, that households, firstly, they suffered what they call a relative price shock. So if the, if you're spending more on energy, you're going to spend less elsewhere. Um, you'll spend less going out. You'll spend less going to the cinema. You'll cut back on, on other household items, on groceries and other bills. And the big challenge there actually is that the sector that's most vulnerable to that is areas where we have a choice what to spend uh, and a lot of that is the same sectors that were worst impacted by covid so this experience economy you don't go on your weekend away you don't go out on a saturday night or you don't go to the cinema because you're trying to cut back to pay those bills um and the second challenge there as well is that as consumers start to start to expect uh further price increases and that gets built in uh firstly from both a business and a consumer point of view they change how they consume and what they 
what they choose to invest in as well um, and, and businesses as well as the energy side are facing commodity price increases that are pretty extreme, uh, upwards of 50% in some commodities too. Um, that, that will affect investment decisions and, and what people's expectations of the future is. And, and what the SRI were saying this morning about a wage price spiral is, is something that will keep a lot of uh, HR managers and businesses awake at night and CFOs, right? That, that you get into this process where nobody really gains from it. Uh, in reality, inflation goes up, wages chase inflation, that pushes inflation up more uh, and you get into a, a, a pretty bad spiral that we saw through uh, a lot of the, the late 70s and early 80s. Um, but we're, we're not there yet, I don't think, uh, in, in feedback from members, we're not there quite yet. But there is a danger that we get there. The longer that the high levels of inflation go on, um, the, the more likely that becomes. And, and if this is going to be a two or three year thing, if, if and, and it does look like sanctions are going to last an awful long time, then you will see that uh, that pressure start to build. Um, so there's lots of different uh, different spaces where this is going to impact business. And presumably the uncertainty is very difficult for businesses to cope with because just a few weeks ago, we were talking about inflation peaking this year and, and, and petering away then. But now the SRI are saying, well, it's going to last well into next year. Who knows what happens beyond that? And a whole new level of prices as well as, as, well as actual inflation. Yeah, and you can, and you can see that uncertainty in the forecasts that are coming out, where uh, where the ECB, for example, are saying this disappears by the middle of next year. But we heard that before, and and it didn't come true, right? Um, and, and a lot of it is driven not by any kind of economics. It's it's a lot of a lot of it is just driven by geopolitics. Um, and and the reality of the the tragedy uh, in in Ukraine. Um, and however long that situation plays out, we're going to see continuing uncertainty in the environment. What it means from a very practical kind of business point of view is uh, investment decisions that would have been made in normal circumstances won't get made or will be delayed or investment decisions because energy in particular is embodied in absolutely everything that businesses do um, that the cost or the the kind of cost benefit of certain projects um, doesn't make sense anymore um, or they have to rethink how those projects are undertaken and that that puts them back in time. So, so there's there's a load of different channels that that uncertainty will have just on the business side. And then you get the households as well who, who face the same kind of trade-offs. Mernon, in terms of uh, the options that the government has now to address this, uh, you've spoken before about energy security and how it comes down to both prices and supply. What are the uh, things that the government can and should be doing now looking out over the next six months here? Yeah, I guess the first thing to say is that we can't completely insulate the economy from the effects of war. Um, you know, th- this is going to have impacts economy-wide, um, not just through prices, but um, that's what we're talking about right now. So there is no way we can, there, there's nothing, there are no policy options available to eliminate these impacts. We have to make some choices. Um, what we have found is that we know that um, less affluent households spend a greater proportion of their income on energy than more affluent households. Now, the quantity of energy consumed does increase with income. So it's certainly true that if you do something like cut, cut excise duty, that there is um, a greater absolute benefit to richer households. But in terms of a proportion of their spend, these kind of things, an an increase in the price of energy hurts poorer households more. 
Um, and then we also know that this is true as well in terms of the general inflation that we've been seeing. There was some research out by colleagues a few weeks ago that showed that the price rises we'd been seeing across the economy up until then had a greater impact on, on less affluent households. So I think one thing that is always an option, always on the table, is to try to target whatever we're doing toward lower income households. We have quite a sophisticated tax and welfare system in this country, um, and we're able to do that. We um, are able to tweak certain payments and make sure that they're directed in the right place. Sometimes we kind of tend to make a policy move and then figure out after the fact whether or not it targeted the right households. Um, sometimes you're just doing things very quickly. So, for example, the 200 euro energy credit that everybody got, that was a good example of, you know, let's just do something right now quickly. Um, indeed, some of the pandemic payments that we saw, you, you know, kind of let's let's go with 300 euro. Actually, let's go with 350 euro. That, that was just about trying to make decisions very quickly. And nobody expects anyone to get everything right in that context. But I would say that in terms of shielding from higher prices, that's about all you can do. Try to target any supports toward those on low incomes and particularly those on fixed incomes. So um, Jer was talking there about the potential for a, a wage price spiral. That's not what we want to see. But anyone who's on a fixed income, they their wage can't um, spiral by definition. In terms of the actual security of the supply itself, whether it's the physical security, in the short run, there's not a huge amount we can do um, because it takes time to build up the kind of infrastructure that will be required to increase our energy security. But there are it's it stands to reason that one of the things that we can do is try to reduce the amount of energy we're using. That was one of the big legacies of the oil crises in the 70s. There was a huge reduction in the amount of energy being used um, across the world, but in some countries more than others. Um, and there was an increase in energy efficiency. So we do an awful lot more per unit of energy now than we did back when oil was, you know, $5 a barrel. Um, but can we do even more again? Yes, we can. There still is room for improvement on energy efficiency. And it does lead to savings in the long run, but there is that short short run significant upfront cost. Um, and with households credit constrained, um, that is not necessarily an insurmountable barrier. Okay, just to, just to come back on one thing there, in terms of helping poorer households, there is this thing of, you know, we, we could, could excise duties, we could cut VAT, which seems to be being looked at. Are you saying that it's better rather than doing that to direct payments directly to those households through the welfare system mainly and the tax system, I suppose? Or, or is it a mixture of the two we should be, the government should be looking at? Yeah, I mean, it would certainly be more progressive to use the tax and welfare system directly. Um However, there are, you know, there are kind of administrative barriers there. Um, at what point do you have a mini budget? You know, there's only so much you can do. Um, like you can kind of cut excise duty fairly quickly. Whereas if you want to bring a whole new social welfare bill, then that really is a mini budget. Um, do you want to do a mix of the two? Sure, because we have to remember as well, we're not just looking at the impact on households, we're also looking at the impact on businesses, which is what Joe was talking about. So if we 100% focus on the impact on households, um, that could, in the long run, if that sees an awful lot of businesses struggling, then that can also have impacts on low-income households if kind of um, employment gets affected and all that kind of thing. But it certainly is the case that... Um, the someone is going to feel the impact of this. We can't shield the entire economy from the effects of war. So it's about trying to make sure that those who do feel the impact of it are best able to afford it. And that means trying to target whatever policies we come up with toward those who are least able to afford it. 
Okay, thanks. Um, Ger, what's your take on this? What, what should the government be doing? Uh, obviously, they, they did the 200 euros for every household, maybe at a time when it looked like that might be nearly enough to shield people, but we're into another, we're into another space now and prices are shooting up. Yeah, I, th- I think the context in which we're making these decisions has changed an awful lot since the first time we, we made them. Um, yeah, I, I agree with Mern, right? Um, you want to try and target, and we're in a different fiscal situation than we were with COVID as well, where interest rates are going to rise and where tax receipts are going to fall because the most energy intensive sectors also tend to be the ones that pay the most tax in, in terms of manufacturing and, and, and tech and, and others. Um, so we are going to see uh, taxes probably hit harder this time around than they were during COVID uh, relative to the size of the shock to the economy. So you have to use your resources smarter and, and try and target them. We, we learned a lot during COVID about targeting schemes and, and including schemes for business to, to try and target it. And, and it can be done at pace um, if we put our minds to it. But there will be mistakes made along the way with all of these schemes. But but if you start from the from the... The point of view that it's better to try and target those people who, and remembering that there are a lot of pandemic savings in a lot of households still, so some households have buffers built up um, that, that that it should be fixed on, on people with fixed incomes, low incomes, or people very vulnerable to, to energy poverty uh, in the first instance. But politically, that's a different situation when everyone's feeling it, the, the political urge is to, to cover everyone. And then in terms of what can be done in the in the longer run, look, there there are options around gas storage, for example, which we're we're the only country along with Malta in the in the EU without any gas storage, and that was a policy mistake. Um to, to run that down, the, the seven heads field in Kinsale. sale. Um we could rectify that fairly quickly um with, with salt cavities and other options um and, and try and build up reserves. But as Murren said, that's going to be if there is a shock, this is going to be shared across all of Europe. Um, and, and look, in, in the longer term, energy security is all about the move to energy efficiency, in the, which can be done pretty short term, uh, heat pumps, solar PV and, 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 and the retrofit scheme, along with the long term move towards renewables. And there's lots of places in the planning system which we could improve how we, uh, how we roll that out uh, and how quickly we roll out, uh, roll out renewables and energy efficiency schemes. I, I think it's going to lead to a, a pretty major shift in European positioning because if there was a supply gap, Russia is about 40% of our energy use. Um, the best estimates the International Energy Agency and, and the European Commission have said we could replace a portion of that, maybe between a third and two thirds of, of that Russian gas in the short term uh, through diversifying to LNG and, and using energy efficiency schemes, rolling out renewables quicker. But that still leaves between 12 and 25 percent of, of European gas consumption um, a, a gap if there was a supply shock, uh, a cut off of Russian gas. And, and ultimately, um, that's going to, to result in rationing uh, if it did happen. Um, so, so there are no easy choices here, and a lot of them are quite are quite frightening when when you when you come to looking at them in detail. And obviously, vulnerable households and social services are the are, are the people to be protected, I suppose, in the event of rationing, which leaves businesses exposed. Yeah, yeah, there is there's there's clear frameworks for how you deal with with rationing. If it did happen first, you you look for energy suppliers to move to to other forms of fuel apart from gas, to move to oil distillates and others, which is a ma- major logistical challenge. Then you ask energy to start to uh, energy users, um, particularly in industry, to start to to lower their demand to to run things down. Which, from an economic point of view, like if you think about Irish manufacturing. 
um, we're the, the output of the sector is in the hundreds of millions a day. Um, and, and if there was a, a, sh- a rundown, um, it would be a pretty major economic shock, actually, across Europe, um, not just here. And as Mirren said at the very start, we're not going to avoid this just because we don't import Russian gas, because we're part of the EU um, more broadly. Um, and yeah, it is it is a pretty scary thought. So so the move towards renewables, towards um, not just wind, but also hydrogen, biogas and, and all those kind of areas in the kind of medium term is is crucially important but in the short term the only way to insulate businesses is the investments in in security of supply through through gas storage it does nothing about price though in fact it maybe bids up price what the commission is is going to do in terms of trying to build up storage again and the energy efficiency schemes uh, rolling them out as quickly as possible um and the same for households uh, they are really the only uh, along with direct transfers of of cash uh, thing that the government can do if the worst comes to it. Mirren, there's interesting kind of debate here and internationally. Some people are saying, look, the only way to get through this is to go back and, and look at fossil fuels and use more fossil fuels to help us get through the next couple of years uh, as we transition to greener energy. And, and the flip side, you know, the other side of the debate is saying, look, we must accelerate the move to renewables there's no way we should be going back to burning more coal, for example. We, we just have to, you know, push forward and try and save energy and, and save the earth, I suppose, at the same time. Give us your view on how to balance those two arguments. Yeah, I mean, let me let me put two thought experiments for a second. If, let's just, if fossil fuels had no carbon emissions associated with them and this war had happened, I think we would absolutely be responding to it by diversifying our fossil fuel supply. You know, there, there'd be no question of saying the best way to respond to this is by reducing our energy demand. We just, if there were no climate impacts, that's clearly what we, we would do. On the other hand, let's just say there was no war um, and we wanted to get to net zero by 2050, which we do. How different would our decarbonisation policy look? Not that much. <laughs> like, in order to hit net zero by 2050, with or without a war, we have to do an unbelievable amount of work. It's quite staggering the rate at which we need to reduce these, uh, reduce our CO2 emissions with or without geopolitical instability. So, I think what both those thought experiments show is there's no easy way to come down one way or the other. But it certainly is true that if you want to get to net zero by 2050, that means very little, if any, fossil fuel usage by 2050. But it still does mean fossil fuel usage in the meantime. We can't get rid of fossil fuels today or tomorrow. Um, And with or without a war, that was the case. So I think what this has done is it hasn't I mean, the calculus has probably changed a bit around how quickly we want to reduce our usage of fossil fuels, for sure. But I think the main thing this has done is changed where we want to source our fossil fuels, Um, because we were always going to be using gas as a transitionary fuel, and we will continue to do so. But it's a question of what price are we paying for that gas? Where are we getting that gas from? How certain are we of the security of that gas supply? In terms of efficiency, 
It's really unfortunate in our case that um, we have a growing population, um, both in absolute terms and then kind of compared to the rest of Europe, and we have a housing shortage where we're starting where we're starting from right now. The construction sector is under extreme pressure, and one of the first areas where we saw the impact of all of these price hikes was actually in the construction sector. So in many ways, it's actually the worst time to go embarking on a national retrofit program. But that's not to say we shouldn't do it. Um, we absolutely should. But it is the case, you talk to anyone right now who wants to build a new property or who wants to retrofit an existing property, they're going to be waiting a long time. They're going to be paying a high price um, because that's just the way the construction sector is right now. Um, and it's incredibly um, frustrating in many ways that, that that's where we are in the short term. But I totally agree with Jared. There's really not much else you can do in the short term. Marginal switches away from you know, transport or, or whatever, um, you know, a bit more walking, a bit more cycling, that's all great. But in order to get the big moves on energy and on um, climate that we need to see, it's really, they tend to require investment, whether it's an investment in a new vehicle or in a new house, um, all of that kind of thing. And investment takes time. And talking about the, the big investment, and which will take a lot of time, wind energy, Minister Eamon Ryan has put forward a new licensing plan this week. Are we finally get, getting serious about this wind energy uh, proposal? Well, one of the things about wind energy that I think people forget is we have some of the highest wind energy levels in Europe, um, not just in terms of the resource, in terms of the actual electricity generated from wind. It's staggeringly high. Um, and that's mostly from onshore wind energy, where we have lagged is offshore. Um, now, I think Certainly, there are political reasons for that, lack of a strategy, all the rest of it. Um, but also just the fact that our onshore resource is so good um, and the fact that we do have relatively large areas of the country compared to the likes of Britain, where population is low enough that you can exploit that onshore resource. I think that partly explains why we've been slower out of the tracks on offshore. Um, when it comes to offshore, though, I do think there's there's still a kind of a gap in terms of what are we going to do with it. You know, we have an extra interconnector to France planned, but that made sense on its own before we put 80 gigawatts of offshore wind turbines in the Irish Sea. So there's, I mean, the first paper I did as part of my PhD, I was supposed to be looking at the European supergrid. And um, my, my, the first research that I did found that where you put the wind turbines in Europe actually really depends on the European, the pan-European policy. So if you have renewable targets at country level, or if you essentially have everyone with their own renewable policy, then you're not going to export half as much wind as you would in a situation where we're just trying to meet a global or a pan-European target. And that just stands to reason, right? Um, so it's just going to come down to things like, is there a market for all of this offshore wind? If so, is it by interconnecting to other European countries and just powering all of Europe? Is it by trying to interconnect via Great Britain to Norway in order to balance against their hydro? Or is there a role for hydrogen, which remains to be seen? So I think until those longer term questions are answered, we will see marginal increases, certainly in both onshore and offshore wind, but we won't get to these massive levels that we're seeing unless we have the long term market sorted. Yeah, that's interesting. Jerry, uh, what's your view on that one? I, there, there seems to be a lot of people looking around Irish offshore energy. There's um, seven companies applying now for these new licenses. And a lot of talk about wind off the West Coast, but but still, as Merlin said, we've got to wait and see how it pans out. 
um, talk of interest from Germany and France and countries like that and accessing Ireland, Ireland's offshore energy, perhaps via hydrogen in the longer term. What's your take on that? There's no lack of money uh, for renewables in general. So not just offshore wind, onshore um, hydrogen, uh, biomethane or, or, or uh, renewable gases. And look, the, the, the problem with a lot of this stuff is that we're only getting to strategies now um, where we have to reach uh, net zero goals. And look, it's probably worth saying we rely on gas more than any other country in Europe for, for electricity generation, right? So so there are areas that, that we definitely need more renewables in the mix, but we will need gas to, to manage, you know, the variability of, of a lot of renewables um, uh, for, for a long time yet. Um, but you know, we probably need to to get to the first step first, which is being able to roll out these things, having a planning system that works. And we're only getting to that now with the new launch uh, and, and the launch isn't until next year of the, of the new Marine um, Rene- uh, Regulation Agency, MARA, which will, will give consent to the start of all of this. There's resourcing issues across the board in, in the likes of onboard Planola to, to try and get, uh, get these, um, build outs done quickly and, and like the big challenge from an Irish point of view from a, from an industry perspective at least is a, a lot of businesses are moving towards in the very very short term towards targets net zero targets individually on both scope one and two emissions where they're saying we need renewables right now um, and it is going to take a long time and, and there's a kind of an arms race a bit in Europe where this becomes part of the FDI model um, particularly for high value manufacturing and energy intensive companies that they're saying that countries with the most secure supplies of what we can consider green energy or renewable energy are the ones that are going to get investment uh, at the at the margin uh, relative to all the other skills and tax things and everything else that that people look at and other countries have nuclear they've uh, hydropower in in the nordics in particular switzerland and and other countries have other options we tend to rely on it's either gas or wind uh, we're going to need to need to roll out renewables much much quicker um if we're going to be able to do the both green and secure at the same time um and and that's that's uh, you know was as Mern said already the case before we got into this crisis. Uh, I think maybe this crisis shakes a bit of that in, inertia off us, where we assume that sometimes in policy in Ireland things are going to work out fine without putting the building blocks and the institutions in place in the first instance. Um, and and that's where we really are now. That needs to accelerate really rapidly in terms of planning for lots of areas where we don't have plans, um, and and don't have strategies including we don't have an energy security strategy um, that's been promised since 2019. Um, and we, we don't have plans in, in areas like solar PV and in hydrogen and other spaces that that need to be brought forward really quickly, uh, as well as all the planning issues, which look, we could spend a whole another episode talking about issues in the planning system, um, not just in renewables, but but all of those need to, need to come on fairly rapidly now. Um, so if we are to have a reputation that we can stand over um, when it comes to that big shift that, we, that we're seeing all over the place, actually, in business, the, the big shift towards uh, people making their own targets of net zero and looking around in terms of investments um, and seeing where they might be able to fulfill those those targets. Um, and, and that's going to be a big challenge. Great. Well, short term crisis and a lot of long term questions. Um, we're in Lynch of the SRI, uh, Jar Brady of Ibeck. Thanks very much for your time this morning. Thank you. Thanks, Mel. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll be talking to Kevin O'Donovan from Statcraft. At EY, 
Our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Welcome back. I'm joined now by Kevin O'Donovan, Managing Director of Statcraft in Ireland. I first asked him to tell me a bit about the company's plans to invest in Ireland. Statcraft is um, an exciting company from my perspective uh, in terms of it's the largest renewable energy producer in Europe already, driven by uh, having a large amount of hydro generating capacity as well as obviously um, growing wind and solar uh, capacities. So Statcraft entered the Irish market in 2018 when it acquired uh, my previous company uh, that was involved in Element Power. Um, and over the last three years, Statcraft has invested heavily in various renewable energy projects in Ireland. And to date, we've um, doubled our workforce, tripled our portfolio and built uh, two of the first uh, commercial scale battery projects in Ireland um, and secured the largest amount of uh, capacity in the first renewable energy auction scheme in Ireland. Um, so we're now building those four projects. There's two wind farms and two uh, large-scale solar farms as well. Um, and in addition to that, Statcraft is is also developing um, the NISA offshore wind farm project amongst a number of offshore projects that we're looking at. Um, the NISA project then is one of those first wave of projects that are likely to be developed um, under the recently announced uh, scheme that the minister launched um, where he has asked for applications under the maritime area consent. Um, so uh, Statcraft is very excited about that project. Um, we've been developing it for a, a number of years now. We've worked very hard with the local communities to come up with a design of a project that we feel is appropriate for its location off the Mead, uh, Loud and Dublin coastline. And that includes working with the local fishing communities as well as other stakeholders who uh, have use of the area um, that the project is proposed to be located in. Um, and it's the ideal location for uh, an offshore project. When you look at where the demand in Ireland for power is at the moment, it's obviously very heavily um, uh, loaded in demand from, from the Dublin area and even more so with the large amount of uh, development in North Dublin, the data centre consumption is, is growing in that area. So our project connects directly into North Dublin through an existing air grid substation um, and really I would say is in the right location and, and hopefully um, going to deliver power at the right time for, for the overall Irish renewable energy policy ambitions. Kevin, obviously the, the minister, as you say, announced um, announced those new proposals earlier this week and you were one of the one of the seven projects included in that. What happens now? The minister has announced the plan. You, you, how does it progress? And he has spoken about a four-year target for getting these projects on stream. Is that is that reasonable? Uh, is that achievable, do you think? Yeah, so first of all, we were delighted to hear the announcement. Uh, I guess it's been... Um, in the in the making for quite a while, um, the government has very clearly set ambitious targets uh, in terms of renewable energy and specifically with offshore with five gigawatts by 2030. So this 
MAC Maritime Area Consent process is is now requesting submissions from projects like the NISA project, uh, which will be a submission based on, I guess, the technical and financial capabilities of the project and the developer. Um, and we would hope that that uh, application will be processed as, as soon as possible over the, the next few months. And the next step after that, if a MAC consent is approved, is that the project can then go on to the formal uh, planning uh, application process. So Board Panala are the competent body uh, under the Irish planning uh, policy legislation that was put in place uh, last year with the MAP bill. Um, so we would hope that we can um, immediately engage with Board Panala post uh, the MAC consent to scope out and agree on the um, content of the planning application environmental impact statement that would be needed to be submitted for the project. Obviously, you've done some on-the-ground work already. You've, you were saying you've engaged with local communities, with fishing groups, with AirGrid, I presume. Yeah, and and uh, quite quite a lot of um, uh, environmental assessment work. Some a lot of the the surveys and assessments that are required actually require several years of of continuous survey work. So we've had um, a lot of activity over the years of assessing the general area, and that has allowed us take the project to what we would say a relatively advanced stage and we would hope that um, we will be able to submit a planning application within a relatively um, reasonable period of time after uh, we get the MAC consent. So that that's the, the process and then it's over to Board Panala for the decision making uh, of the application. And, you know, again, our, our aim is that all throughout the, both the, the MAC application stage and the planning application stage that we will continue to engage with local communities and other stakeholders uh, for the project. Are you confident, Kevin, that the planning system can move quickly enough? It seems to be a, it's an issue for the, for, for the industry. Yeah. Um, if I look at it at a broad level, so I sit on Stackcraft's European Wind and Solar Management Team. So what I'm seeing happening in Ireland from a macro policy perspective, is very positive, very aligned with what other European countries are doing. And in fact, I would say our our, our ambitions and targets are, are probably uh, at the top end of um, where countries are. And what, what I'm seeing even in the last few weeks and months since the, the issues started arising in the Ukraine and the energy price escalation that happened even before that is other countries are actually setting quite similar targets to Ireland. So Germany actually... Uh, earlier this year um, has now targeted 80% of all electricity coming from renewables by 2030. So matching what the Irish government set in its programme for government. Um, So from that perspective, it's really positive in terms of we've got the resources, we've got the correct ambitions, and we've got the technologies to actually deliver on that. So the challenges are more in terms of our our system, which is under our control as as a country, um, and planning is one of those areas that is undoubtedly a bottleneck and a challenge at the moment. So um, for us to achieve our targets, there is going to have to be uh, more deployment of onshore wind, solar, battery storage, grid service projects, uh, grid infrastructure, as well as the offshore projects. Um, and, you know, to date, we've seen a significant resource crunch, I would say, in Port Panala in terms of making decisions for renewable uh, and climate change related projects. So to now uh, add the um, offshore projects to that, we do have some 
um, uh, concern that that will add to an already very significant workload there. So um, I think it's something that the policymakers are aware of. And I know that we've got uh, quite a bit of feedback in terms of that there is plans to resource uh, onboard Panala to be able to do um, the, the increased workload. Um, but but for me, I think that's a challenge that uh, we as a country need to face up to. If we want to make a step change in our ambitions in terms of delivering renewable energy and making a meaningful uh, attempt and uh, action towards um, addressing climate change, then we need to make those step changes in our system, whether that be resourcing uh, and focus in onboard Panala on making uh, reasonable timeline decisions for uh, planning applications of climate change related projects or in the regulator or in the system operator in air grid or in ESB networks in rolling out the infrastructure. So for me, that is the challenge for Ireland. And when I look at other countries, I think that we do have some way to go there in terms of having sufficient resources in those various parts of the Irish state system to be able to enable and deliver on our ambitions. Are we at risk of being left behind, Kevin? I mean, for example, the UK seems to be making a lot of progress. Scotland seems to be making a lot of progress in particular. It's a competitive race. Yeah, it is a very competitive race. But I guess, given my development background, I'm uh, an optimistic person when I look at these these challenges. And, um, you know, I think uh, in in Ireland, um, we started in, in the early 2000s where um, I started in the sector and we were told that we would never connect more than a few hundred megawatts of wind power to the Irish grid. And that was, we were being told that by the system operator at the time. Uh, yet by 2010, we had over uh, a gigawatt, over a thousand megawatts of, of uh, renewables connected to the system. And then after that, the 2020 target of 40% of our electricity coming from renewables was a target that uh, even the optimistic developers or, or renewable energy enthusiasts like myself felt was maybe something we couldn't achieve as an industry and as a country. But the country did get there and uh, Ireland did deliver on uh, that aspect of its uh, 2020 targets. It obviously fell down in other areas, um, but it did deliver over 40% of the electricity demand in 2020 from, from renewables. And that's something that was a fantastic achievement. So I think we're, we're at a similar stage here where there's a real challenge to try and deliver our 80% of electricity coming from renewables by 2030, particularly when you think of that that's actually also building in a significant increase in the electrification demand due to the electrification of transport through EVs and through the electrification of our heat system. So um, really challenging, but uh, it is possible to do, as I said, and for for us to achieve that, it is that focus on resources um, and trying to align within our system to ensure the planning process is efficient, the grid uh, system upgrades are, are done in a manner that enables the projects to be delivered in a timely manner, um, and that the regulatory environment continues to be developed to support not just any individual renewable technology like offshore wind or onshore wind or solar, but also the system services like battery storage projects, grid system stability projects, which are all needed as that part of, uh, of the overall mix to help us achieve our targets. And do you think the Irish system, in inverted commas, Irish politicians are serious about this now? Do you think that they've they've got it in terms of what needs to be done? I think there's a very good ambition there now to try and achieve what's there. We've, we've done that ambition piece. We've set the goals. Um, 
And I think part of our job as the renewable industry um, is to work with the policymakers, work with the politicians and work with the, the, the various government departments and, and uh, other bodies involved in uh, climate change related initiatives to just scale up a line and ensure that we can deliver it. I think it can be done. I think the politicians who I speak to quite regularly are um, very supportive to make it happen and are very much wanting to know, well, what, where is the, 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 the bottleneck? What is the challenge? And, um, you know, I think people actually in a way, maybe even listening to this uh, uh, discussion here may find it a little bit underwhelming and boring. It's, it's not about new technologies that none of us have thought about yet. It's not about some really, really um, new concept. It's actually just about getting the existing system to be fit for purpose to allow us to deliver um, so I, I think there are challenges there, um, but I do think there's a better understanding um, on an almost uh, reg <laughs> constant basis now um, at both the political level and also in the policy uh, maker level as well. Kevin, what would the what will the wind farm off the Meadowlout coast look like? How far offshore will it be? How many turbines will it have? Where will it, where will it be serviced from? So it's it's a project that we spent quite a bit of time working with, as I say, local communities, uh, particularly, let's say, the fishing community who, who are active in, in that area, to come up with a design. Um, and we've come up, come up with a quite, a, what I would say, an innovative design in terms of a pod layout. So it's three pods that make up the overall layout with uh, about 10 to 13 turbines in each of those pods. And they've been de designed in such a way that the um, the existing activities there, whether it be fishing activities or other activities, are are enabled to continue in as much as possible. So um, uh, they're quite spread out in terms of the the spacing between the turbines and these individual tree pods that we've designed the layout for, and that also actually makes it, um, it, it I guess, from a, an aesthetic and visual um, perspective. Uh, quite a, a different looking project maybe to a more standard grid type layout where all of the turbines would be squeezed into one um, kind of square grid, which when viewed from a coastline can be quite, um, appear quite cluttered. Um, and in landscape architect terms, that would be described as dominating uh, uh, um, the the view or the coastline, but actually the design that has been developed for this NISA project is is uh, a, a layout where the turbines, I would say, are part of that uh, coastal landscape rather than uh, dominating or taking over that landscape. So we actually on our um, project website have visual simulations of what the project will look like. And those turbines are at a distance of 13 to 20 kilometers away from the the coast. So, you know, that is uh, a, a quite a distance. It won't be that you don't see them, um, but they will be um, in that more background. And I think the photo montages, these photo visual simulations that we have on our website are well worth a, a look for anyone who wants to look at that on the North Irish Sea Array uh, website. Kevin, there's obviously a lot of interest in these projects off the East Coast, the first phase, if you like, of our wind energy adventure. I know we've one plant off Arco already and a lot of onshore onshore wind as well, as you've mentioned. There's also talk of developing the West Coast in kind of a second phase, obviously a, li a little more difficult technically, uh, and talk of Ireland perhaps 
emerging as a as an energy exporter as well as this serving the home market. Is that something that your company would be interested in? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that is the long term picture. Um, but what's really important for for me as someone who's been working in the renewable sector for for over twenty years now is it's always important to deliver on what can be delivered in the in a, a more meaningful near near term period to enable the longer term potential be delivered. So from our perspective, the focus is very much on these first phase of projects so that we can get those projects into water and operating. Um, the floating offshore and w- offshore wind located in other parts of the country uh, can then be developed uh, along a, a, a longer timeline, but very much in conjunction with these first projects being delivered. But one of the things I guess that I benefit from from sitting on a European wind and solar management team now is I see the activity in all these markets. And as you referenced earlier, the UK market is a market leader when it comes to offshore. Um, and you know other European markets are, are quite mature offshore markets. And then there's other newer offshore markets that are um, less advanced, but now starting to make similar progress to what we're doing in Ireland. And it will be important that we uh, develop these first phase of projects to give a confidence to the supply chain that Ireland is a place where offshore can be developed and is a place where there's going to be a stable growing market for the next decades rather than, uh, you know, a short uh, period of, of, of growth and then uh, stagnation. So this is something I've seen um, over the last 20 years with onshore wind in Ireland. The onshore wind sector in Ireland was quite stop-start in the early 2000s and it led to challenges as we built those projects in those stop-start phases to secure the technology, whether it be the turbines or the electrical equipment. So for me, the key here is that we deliver on these phase one projects um, as quickly as we can over the rest of this decade and that that then will create the infrastructure and the system that's there that gives comfort to the supply chain, gives comfort to developers to invest in future projects and enables us to be able to um, really deliver then uh, into the future on our vast resources that we have uh, in the wider Irish waters. Okay. Yeah, final question, Kevin. Obviously, the big one of the big issues about wind energy is it's great when the wind is blowing, but... When it stops, it leaves you with a gap. Now you're talking about battery storage. Uh, there's also talk of uh, of hydrogen investments in Ireland. How do you see that issue being tackled? Yeah, I, um, I think there's a little bit sometimes of um, people seeing headlines that maybe even I've written in the past myself of of you know renewable energy being uh, the answer to some of the problems we're seeing with our energy security and uh, energy price uh, issues that we're seeing at the moment. And and people then automatically think, okay, well, that he's talking about 100% renewables on the system. Um, no, it's it's nothing is as kind of uh, black and white as that. What we already have is our system operator and our government policy aligned and saying, we can supply 80% of our electricity from renewables in 2030. And it's very clearly set out in the Climate Action Plan and in the system operators' uh, plans how that can be achieved. And the secret, actually, to this is quite simple. It's the mixture of onshore wind, solar, offshore wind, interconnection, 
uh, battery storage and grid stability projects. And it's all of those areas being delivered together is actually what will allow us hit a really impressive uh, target in, in 2030. Beyond that, then, technology will evolve. And, you know, I'm quite confident with hydrogen and other technologies as they evolve over the next decade that we can go beyond that again and, and head towards the 2050 ambitions. But right now, technically, we can balance and operate our system safely. And our system operator, AirGrid, has confirmed that, as well as uh, third-party uh, electrical engineering experts, that we can balance and operate our system safely and stably on 80% of all the um, electricity coming from renewables in 2030. So really, for me, it's that mixture. It's that solar power providing that power in those daytime hours when wind generation may be low from onshore wind. It's large amounts of onshore providing a, a large amount of the uh, electricity during the winter, as we saw in February, where we hit a new record with, I think, over 53% of the power coming from uh, renewables, mainly onshore wind in, in the month of February. Um, and it's offshore then with a a, a more... Um, higher output and, and uh, capacity factor factor uh, over the, the long term, allowing it to actually produce quite a lot of power, even during lower wind periods onshore. And then it's interconnection. And I was delighted to see a, a project that uh, my, my former company, Element Power, uh, originated Greenlink, um, reached the start of construction and financial close uh, early this week. And that interconnector between Ireland and Wales uh, in addition to the existing interconnectors and the uh, proposed interconnector with France, are also a key part of allowing us export our, our renewables when we have uh, excess power and to be able to be part of a wider European electrical system to import when we need uh, at periods of lower renewable production. And obviously the battery storage, where, again, Stackraft are very happy to be uh, developing um, battery projects, including our to existing operational battery projects where there is a storage capability and a system stability capability provided by those projects. So it's that overall mix is the um, real secret to us being successful by 2030. Great. Great. Kevin, thank you very much. You've given us great insight there and uh, the best of luck with your project. We look forward to seeing those turbines appearing off the Mead and Louth Coast. Cheers. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, that's it for this week of Inside Business. My thanks to our guests, Mirren Lynch, Gerard Brady and Kevin O'Donovan. This episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for their continued support. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook every day. That's it for now. From me, Cliff Taylor, goodbye.